Welcome to the next session of the National Symposium for Classical Education. We are glad you're able to join us for this year's COVID edition of our symposium, all online, and hope to gather in person once again next year in Phoenix. We want to especially thank our sponsors who have generously joined us for this digital version of events. You can learn more about their various resources designed to support K-12 classical by visiting the Exhibitors tab in the Virtual Attendee Hub. This session is titled Carnivores, Camera Traps, and Conservation, the Past, Present, and Future of African Ecology by Dr. Meredith Palmer. While the session is in progress, feel free to type questions in the Q&A, which is the button on the right-hand side of the screen. Some of these questions will be addressed in the last five to 10 minutes of the session. Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Meredith Palmer and I am a National Science Foundation Fellow at Princeton University. I am a conservation ecologist specializing in predator-prey dynamics and how predators structure ecological communities. Today, I want to present in broad strokes some of the big questions that we're interested in as ecologists, a brief history of how we've approached these questions in the past, and touch on some of our ongoing efforts to protect and rebuild some of the most beautiful and biodiverse ecosystems on the planet. And I want to start off just by grounding everyone in what ecology is as a discipline of science. Ecology is broadly the study of organisms, how they interact with each other and how they interact with the world around them. So this is everything from the microbes in the soil under your feet to trees in a rainforest to organisms lurking at the bottom of the ocean. And a core goal we have is to understand the distribution and abundance of these living things in the physical environment and understand what drives these patterns. We study how these systems are structured in the present, we predict what they were like in the past, and we forecast how natural communities may change in the future. And ecology provides new knowledge on the interdependence between people and nature. And this includes some of the benefits of healthy ecosystems for humans, such as what conditions are necessary for food production, for maintaining clean air and water, and for providing a variety of natural resources. We also study how we can use and interact with Earth's resources in ways that leave the environment healthy for future generations. And in this day and age especially, ecologists are faced with many new challenges driven largely by human activity. Um, and these challenges are they're rapidly and dramatically altering ecological systems around the globe. And we want to understand the consequences of these changes and what we can do to prevent or reverse them. Now, like any science, ecology is a practice of building upon the work of those who came before. Some key theories have withstood rigorous scrutiny, while others are constantly being refined as new data become available. Uh, natural historians were arguably the first ecologists. So the founding of our discipline is conventionally traced back to the ancient Greeks, including Aristotle and his student Theophrastus. And if we were to jump forward many centuries, we see the next big developments in ecology in the 18th and 19th centuries. And this sort of begins with Carl Linnaeus and his system for systematically studying and classifying plants and animals. Around this time, we also have Alexander von Humboldt, who is called the father of ecology. 
His work and the work of other naturalists who studied the distribution of organisms was enabled by the world exploratory expeditions launched by the great maritime powers of Britain, Spain, and Portugal. Later, in the same tradition, we have the contemporaries of Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, who both proposed paradigm-shifting ideas about how animals compete with each other and their environment to survive. Um, in the early 20th century, the term ecologist is first coined, and this is driven by a growing recognition that humans are impacting our environment in detrimental ways. So the greats of uh, Tansley, Eaton, and Hutchinson, they coined the term ecosystem and started drawing together many different disciplines, including mathematics, genetics, and chemistry, to try and understand how species survive and reproduce in different habitats around the world. And even after all these centuries, we're still working to try and derive the underlying mechanisms that structure ecological interactions. So the ecologists of today, modern ecologists, are rigorous quantitative scientists. We run controlled experiments. We use statistics to find patterns in large data sets. We build mathematical models of species interactions. And I'd also like to stress that ecology is a highly interdisciplinary science, relying on many diverse fields to try and understand our natural world. And I'd now like to talk about how both of these aspects play out in my own research agenda. And as I mentioned up top, I'm a large carnivore ecologist and conservationist. And rather than doing a deep dive into any specific project I'm working on, I wanted to give a broad overview of some of our scientific discoveries, talk about how I apply these findings in ongoing conservation efforts, and discuss the science and education outreach projects that I lead, uh, including those that can be used with students in classrooms to provide authentic learning experiences. So my work, um, my scientific discovery, focuses on understanding species interactions and the trickle-down consequences of these interactions throughout the broader ecological community, with again a specific focus on understanding predator-prey dynamics. Now, in ecology, there is a long-held tradition that predators are essential for structuring ecological communities that we need large carnivores and ecosystems for them to function quote unquote correctly and maintain biodiversity and ecosystem processes. And this is a massive pressing concern because with their large resource requirements and potential for agonistic interactions with people, predators are often the first animals to be driven extinct by humans. And today over 60% of the world's terrestrial predators are threatened by extinction. However, the strength of what we call this top-down forcing by predators on ecological communities is mostly based on anecdotal evidence from only a few case studies. And recently, we're finding that many of our classic examples of predators restoring ecosystems, um, like the wolf reintroduction to Yellowstone, for example, don't hold up under rigorous examinations. One of the core questions I'm trying to answer then is how exactly do predators impact prey and thereby shape um, their larger environments? Now, there are two ways that predators can shape prey fitness and population dynamics. They directly consume prey, removing prey individuals from the population, and this is very well studied. This is where we find much of our classical predator-prey theory. But predators can also affect prey indirectly by inducing costly behavioral, physiological, and morphological changes in these animals. And these costs come as the result of strategies that prey use to try to avoid getting eaten in the first place. 
And we call the cost of avoiding predation fear. And the study of fear effects is then the ecology of fear. And this is my discipline, and this is a relatively new field of study compared to those direct consumptive predator effects. And there is a surprisingly significant amount of research suggesting that these effects of fear are actually a stronger force structuring ecological systems than the well-studied consumptive effects of predation. But our knowledge of fear effects has been derived mostly from small-scale experimental systems. So this has been studied in mesocosms and tanks with highly manipulatable animals like spiders and grasshoppers. And we don't know whether these effects scale up to have the same impacts in natural systems. But this may just be the missing link we need to explain the unexpected effects uh, or lack thereof of large predators in nature. So I study the costly behaviors that prey animals use to avoid predators. Again, the, the fear of predation and the cascading consequences that these behavioral decisions have on the broader ecological community. And I work across multiple predator prey systems in order to derive overarching general principles. And this includes both large predators in Africa and wolves in North America. To collect these data, I rely very heavily on camera trap surveys. Uh, with camera traps being a piece of technology, they're cameras that you can set up and you leave in the field and they're triggered to take pictures, AKA data of passing wildlife. So we use our camera traps, we have predator monitoring programs, I use remote sensing data from drones and satellites, uh, and run a bunch of um, innovative, shall we say, predator simulation experiments. And I really want to stress the role that technology plays in our work. We're able to collect more and better data and process it faster today than we've ever dreamed possible with the help of these new technological advances. And we're constantly innovating at the face, the interface of conservation and technology to create new ways to study natural systems. So my work in particular heavily utilizes these advanced cameras technology um, and also artificial intelligence to monitor wildlife communities. So with these data, I can start chipping away at how predators shape prey behavioral dynamics. Prey use a number of different anti-predator behaviors to either avoid encountering predators in the first place or to escape from predators when they're encountered. And here, I'm just gonna focus on one facet of these responses. So when it comes to avoiding predators specifically, we've discovered that prey appear to navigate their habitats, not in terms of the physical habitat, but in terms of how relatively dangerous or safe they perceive different areas to be. And we call this mental map of predation risk a landscape of fear. So the goal as a prey animal, you want to stay away from those rivers that lions always hang out or those dense trees full of leopards. And this constrains your ability to access different parts of the landscape to access resources. Now, some of our newest, most exciting research has actually been uncovering that prey recognize that predation risk varies not only across space, but also through time. So those areas that would be highly dangerous to be in when lions are awake are actually relatively safe when lions are asleep. So this changes the degree to which predation risk or fear effects impact prey populations. Traditionally, we would have predicted that by avoiding these very dangerous areas all the time, prey would not be able to access resources in their areas, those areas, and their health would suffer. 
But we now know that prey do go into dangerous areas, again, during safe times to get those resources, meaning that their overall predator effects are less than we thought they would be. And this has important consequences, not just for predator impacts on prey health, but also these effects uh, cascade out to affect the wider ecological community. So again, if you remember that popular Yellowstone example, they reintroduced wolves after a century of absence. And these wolves were thought to essentially rejuvenate the park's vegetation by scaring hungry elk away from certain areas and thereby allowing new trees to grow. Um, but Yellowstone isn't an experiment. It doesn't have a control that we can compare our data to. There's only one of them. There aren't that many cases where predators were restored on this magnitude where we can, we can rigorously monitor those predator effects in real time. Um, and I, however, was able to test, actually test out this theory rigorously in a new system we have in northern Minnesota that is actively being recolonized by wolves. So there were no wolves and wolves are coming back into the system. And so in this place in Minnesota, we monitored deer behavior, we monitored plant community composition and biomass, we monitored soil nutrients all simultaneously to see whether we could detect what we call a trophic cascade. So wolves affecting deer, affecting plants, affecting soils. Um, and ultimately, no cascading effects were detected. Uh, and this is very contrary to what we would expect based on these, these case studies, these anecdotal examples. But the clever part about this experiment, though, is that we were then able to figure out why. Now, again, under traditional trophic cascade theory, we would expect our prey, these deer, to only be hanging out and therefore only eating, trampling, and defecating in safe areas of the landscape, changing the vegetation and soil communities in these areas, but not in the dangerous areas. And so that's what generates our trophic cascade. However, like with the African lions, wolves create a landscape of fear that also changes through time. And we find that deer are using these um, safe times to go into dangerous places. So this spreads their impact on the broader community across the landscape. And we've demonstrated that this is what is curtailing those trophic cascades. So this is very important to really structure our understanding of the role that carnivores play in natural systems and the pathways by which they're structuring these ecological communities. This helps us to better forecast how systems change when carnivores go extinct, and it also aids our effort to restore these functional ecological relationships when we use conservation initiatives to rebuild ecological systems. So I just want to go through a couple of systems I'm working in right now where we're actively doing a lot of conservation work. One of my primary field sites is the Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique in East Africa. Um, and this park used to be a gem of Africa. It used to be this beautiful reserve full of stunning biodiversity. And that was until the Mozambican Civil War broke out in 1977. And this war lasted for almost two decades, during the course of which we had poachers, guerrilla fighters, and refugees inhabiting the Gorongosa Park. And they essentially wiped out all animals uh, bigger than a mongoose. So the park was completely defaunated. Uh, and we're only now starting to rebuild the animal community that existed before the war. So currently, all of the pre-war herbivore species are back, um, although not in the same numbers or relative proportions that they used to be. And we think some of this disparity is due to the fact that predators are still struggling to get a toehold, that they're not there to exert those predator effects that we've been talking about. Um, but we are making progress in that direction as well. 
We've now had in the last two years, two introductions of wild dog packs from South Africa. Uh, and encouragingly, these packs seem to be thriving. And we're making new plans over the next few years to reintroduce even more predator species. And we're actively tracking the changes in these systems um, as the predators become established. Now, I'm also interested in lion reintroductions and their cascading effects in South African parks and reserves. Large predators were extirpated throughout South Africa in the early 1900s. Um, but since the 1980s, conservation and tourism has really driven efforts to reestablish lion populations. And so I work with an organization called the Lion Management Forum to try and make these reintroductions as successful as possible. And one big problem that we face is that prey in these systems have had no ecological experience with predators. They've spent 100 years, several generations, without natural enemies. And some species just simply don't know how to handle renewed predation risk, and they get wiped out very quickly by restored lions. Um, other species, however, seem to fare better, and we're trying to figure out right now the mechanisms by which animals learn to perform effective anti-predator behaviors so that we can prime prey populations not to crash when these historic predators are reintroduced. Um, oops. And so lastly, I want to quickly talk about science education. There are two things that I really want to discuss. Um, one is using education to ratify how science has been shaped through history by the neocolonial narrative. And the second is on using accessible, authentic research experiences to increase global scientific literacy uh, and to inspire and develop the next generation of STEM pioneers. So let's go back to this history of science. Who are these people? Uh, they are white, they are Western, and they are male. They are also colonizers, they were invaders, and they were oppressors. Um, the social relations of power, such as white supremacy, colonialism, and misogyny, have long shaped our scientific understanding of the world. Um, white European and American men specifically have dominated the seats of scientific leadership, which means shaping the scientific narrative, controlling who asks the scientific questions, uh, how these questions are examined, and what results are deemed significant. And especially, pardon my dogs, especially for ecological research in Africa, there is an inescapable historical context rooted in colonialism. And the opportunities, the access, and the funding to work in Africa today are grounded in that privilege. And with conservation work especially, we now often have Westerners with no context for the daily life situations of local people coming in and enforcing top-down conservation policies, policies that value wildlife over human lives and well-being. And we know that these techniques are not only hideously unjust and unfair, but they also simply do not work. The only way to have successful conservation is to foster a sense of natural stewardship in local communities and to build the capacity of these communities to a point where they are prosperous and stable enough to focus on preserving the beautiful biodiversity of their own backyards. So please, please rethink the narrative you teach about science history and about history overall and include these diverse perspectives and historical context. And I do want to highlight that a core philosophy of my research work in Africa as a Western scientist, I realize that's problematic and I do a lot of capacity building to try and give back, to try and give people the tools that they need to take pride and ownership in their own natural capital. 
Um, I can't stress enough how crucially important it is to invest in local scientific uh, talent and infrastructure. And we work really hard to create accessible opportunities for people from all backgrounds to learn these key skills and to make their voices heard in these ongoing dialogues about science and conservation. Now, to draw back to a global level, we also work to increase scientific literacy by engaging people in citizen science. So that is bringing members of the general public in to help with real research and conservation projects. Now, I mentioned before that my work uses a lot of camera traps. Uh, and by a lot, I mean several thousand. And these cameras are operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, all year round, capturing millions of pictures of African wildlife annually. And this is simply far too much data for me to process by myself, you know, particularly with the rapid turnaround that we need to use this data for conservation projects. So instead, I put this data online and essentially crowdsource the classification process to anyone who is willing to help. Uh, anyone with internet can check out our website, look at our pictures, tell us what's in them. And these classifications are, are real. We use them as real data. So we currently have projects now, oops, all over Eastern and Southern Africa. So you can go on an, an armchair safari from the comfort of your own couch to explore biodiversity essentially across the entire continent. And again, these data that you're looking at, that you're classifying, they're being actively used in real research and conservation programs, programs that simply would not be possible without your help and participation. And this is, of course, an amazing opportunity to get students involved in real science, particularly as there are no costs or physical barriers to participation. And to support teachers using citizen science in the classroom, we've created all sorts of lesson plans and multimedia where students ask real questions using real data uh, while learning about ecology. Um, so my final thoughts on science education. You know, while this may be what the history of ecology looks like, through the work we're doing, this is the future of ecology that we're hoping to create. So thank you again so much for your time today, for listening, for learning about our ecological research and our conservation efforts. Uh, here are some links to my citizen science platforms if you're interested in being part of our research and conservation. On my website, you can find all of our teaching resources and other educational multimedia. And please, please reach out through email or social media. I love talking with students, Skyping into classrooms, and really doing what I can to mentor the next generation of STEM pioneers. So thank you, thank you again. This is the Q&A portion of the session. We will have several minutes to field questions from our audience. As you look on the right-hand side of your screen, please ask a question if you have not gotten the chance to already and place your vote on one or more of the prospective questions, which we will use as prompts for our presenter. So we have our first question in. Uh, Dr. Palmer, are you ready? Yep, of course. Hello, everyone. Um, the first question is, 
Is it hard to observe predator-prey interactions without interfering with the ecosystem? Uh, yes, it is. And that is exactly why we rely so much on technology to help us observe these natural systems. Um, so predator-prey interactions are, of course, not, not that common, not that frequent. If I'm driving around the savanna looking for a lion that's about to hunt a gazelle, the chance that I'll find one, you know, on any given day is incredibly slim. But also um, the act of observing animal behavior, you know, a human being there, a car being there, animals know that they're there, that we are there and change their behavior accordingly. And so in order to collect uh, not only sufficient data on predator-prey interactions to be able to draw any inference, but also to minimize the impacts of us, the researcher, being there disrupting natural behavior, that's really why we rely so heavily on these camera traps. These camera traps are incredibly non-intrusive. Um, they're set up in trees. Animals don't notice they're there. They behave very naturally in front of these cameras. And we deploy hundreds and thousands of these cameras across entire landscapes. So there's a lot of eyes on the ground providing really this um, you know, unprecedented look into the secret lives of animals we've seen behaviors recorded on our camera traps that, you know, in four or five decades of research in Africa, um, we've, we've never observed before. So the advent of these new technologies, camera traps, um, also drove, pardon me, drones and satellites also collect uh, behavioral data images of, of animal behavior for us. We're really um, opening up a new frontier of how we study animal behavior um, and, you know, what, what we can learn. So another question came in that's pretty similar to this. Um, should humans, uh, is it ever good for humans to interfere in uh, predator-prey interactions? So it's sort of a similar question, but is it ever okay for humans to do that? I personally would would never interfere in a predator-prey interaction. Um, you know, as, as scientists, we're supposed to be these impartial observers of what's happening in nature. So honestly, one of the only times that we ever, ever interact with wildlife, intercede for wildlife, is if they are injured on account of human activities. So if we find a lion um, that has a snare around its neck, or a wildebeest that's been caught by a poacher. In those cases, we'll go in and we'll do what we can to try and help. Um, but in terms of you know letting nature play its course and documenting what's happening in nature and trying to understand how natural dynamics work, um, then no, in those situations, we would never interfere with a predator-prey interaction. Okay, next question is, if students are interested in pursuing a similar career, what are the kinds of college majors that could feed into this type of career? Sure. Um, so I majored, I got my bachelor's degree in zoology. So zoology, um, biology, ecology, botany, all of those are really excellent um, places to start as an ecologist. But I do want to say that I know many ecologists, and I think the ecologists who are moving our discipline forward right now are actually joining ecology from other fields. So from engineering fields, conservation technology is a huge movement at the moment, developing new kinds of uh, sensors and ways to monitor wildlife. 
Um, computer science is also a really good place to go if you're interested in becoming an ecologist because a lot of what we do is programming, both programming the hardware we use in the field, we use programming to analyze our data and results. Um, I use programming, I rely a lot on artificial intelligence algorithms to help me process different kinds of data. So you can come to ecology from fields that aren't strictly animal science. Um, and I think a really good way to figure out you know, where your place in ecology or conservation is, is to get involved in, in ongoing research projects. Um, and I do understand that you know, there, is, there are barriers to participation um, in, in projects that you know, involve doing real science or real conservation. You know, there's a lot of internships that are available that maybe don't pay so well or in hard places, or you have to be an able-bodied person to participate. If you're able to, I think participating in authentic research experiences in high school, you know, working with scientists in college, doing an internship, working in a lab are all really good ways to figure out how you want to approach science and what kind of skills you need to learn um, in high school or in college to pursue this kind of career. But again, you know, citizen science, these online programs that we run are such a great way for really anyone um, to participate in science and to get a feel for the kinds of things that we do as scientists and to, and to meet scientists and conservationists. We do a lot of outreach talking about our work, talking about who we are, talking about the tools and techniques that we employ in our projects through these online citizen science platforms. Um, so sorry, this, this answer is kind of spiraled out to sort of a broader picture, but I do think, you know, there are so many ways to be involved in ecology and conservation. That if you don't, you know, necessarily feel inspired to go down a direct zoology route, if you can participate in someone's lab or with someone's research, then that's a really good way to feel out where your space is. Another question that's pretty uh, similar to this is, is there a way for amateur photographers to submit photos for wildlife conservation? There is. Um, so there's an app, a very popular app that I would recommend is called iNaturalist. So this is a citizen science um, program. You can download the app on your phone. And essentially, if you go out in nature and you see something interesting or something that you don't know what it is or something that you want other people to know about, you can take a picture of it and then you upload your picture and you upload the coordinates of where you are. Um, and other people on this lab, other researchers, other citizen scientists will help you identify what you found. And that data is also very widely used by ecologists, by scientists trying to understand you know, these, these big questions like what drives species abundance and distributions? Why do we find animals in some habitats, but not others? So that's a really good way to get involved if you um, like want to go out into the world and start exploring the nature in your own backyard. I would highly recommend uh, iNaturalist is the app. That would be a great, a great place to start. So another question just came in, came in about a specific event. Uh, so the question is, Colorado just reintroduced wolves to certain areas, which was controversial. What effects should we expect? On what grounds is the introduction considered successful or harmful? And I guess more generally, like, uh, what would be your opinion on reintroducing predators? 
different to yeah so it's definitely i don't want to speak specifically to the colorado reintroduction because it's not a reintroduction that i'm involved in or one that i could speak authoritatively on um, but there is a huge social dimension to conservation as well so like i said you know conservation isn't necessarily building nature back up to this idealized place where we you know envision it to be quote unquote intact um, but you know successful conservation is people being able to live with wildlife in a way where they can both persist um, and so a lot of the conservation work we do in Africa, you know, with you know, large carnivores in particular, there's a lot of scope for human wildlife interaction. They can hurt people. Um, mostly the concern is these predators taking livestock. Um, and so, you know, we do spend a lot of time on local education. We do spend a lot of time. So there's some great programs such as Lion Guardians, for example. Um, where people from local communities are trained and hired to protect their communities, to protect their lions, to facilitate peaceful coexistence between humans and livestock. We try to funnel a lot of funding into doing things like building corrals and providing um, livestock protecting dogs that help keep people and their, you know, their investments safe. So it is a, it is a very sticky situation. And it's something, one of the reasons why I feel like top-down conservation doesn't necessarily work is because if you're not looking out for these people and you're not looking out for their assets, then they're gonna continue to do what is best for them and their families. And that might be retaliatory killings or trying to force large predators out. Um, and so you really have to come at these problems from many different angles in order for them to be successful. And again, the goal really is, is we want to ensure the well-being of people, but we also want to find ways where they can coexist um, with wildlife in a way that's productive for, for both. What percentage of your work is spent in Africa in the field? Uh, well, because of COVID, um, as of the last year, zero. Uh, typically, I'd say I spend do several trips to Africa a year and spend maybe four or five months in the field total. Um, so the really nice thing about our camera trap projects is that the cameras are collecting data for us year round. So I will go to Africa to collect my camera traps, to collect the data that they've been amassing over the previous couple of months. I go to Africa to run experiments. So if I'm doing an experiment, I'll usually be on the ground for the one or two months it takes to pull off that project. And then I also go to Africa to lead these capacity building workshops and work with students and work with local universities in an educational capacity. Um, so less, you know, a lot of time, many months, less than half a year, I'd say. And then the rest of the time I spend at my university processing these data, analyzing these data, um, writing papers and collaborating with other researchers and conservationists to really understand what the data are saying and figure out how we can take this information and apply it in in ongoing research and conservation efforts. So how uh, should someone uh, contact you if they would like in uh, like you to zoom with their class or come uh, zoom with uh, their college or maybe see some more of your research. 
Sure. Um, so I don't know if that last slide for my presentation can be shared again in some capacity. Um, but I do, I do have a website, Meredith S. Palmer, uh, .weebly.com, which has a number of links. If you Google Snapshot Safari, that is our citizen science platform. So that's where all of the camera traps go online for you to look at and engage with and, and help us process. Um, okay, here we go. So snapshotsafari.org is the citizen science website. That's where the camera trap data is. That's where we have the links to a lot of our educational resources and a lot of the social media and multimedia that we put out. Um, there's more educational resources on my website. So I've recorded talks and lessons, um, live streams, that sort of thing, podcasts, where you can go. I think it provides a nice sort of um, general audience uh, approach to my research. But then, yeah, if you want to contact me directly to, to talk with students, then either Twitter or email is a really great place. I'm pretty responsive. I talk with students everything from uh, elementary school through to university students. I'm happy to uh, mentor students, answer questions, or help classrooms get set up doing you know authentic research with our data. So please, um, please do shoot me a message if you're interested. I would really love to connect with your students. It seems those are all the questions that we have. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to conclude with before I put in some finishing remarks? Yeah, no, I just, I would like to stress again how powerful getting involved with real research is for shaping the, the careers of future ecologists. Um, I think one of the funny things is, is that when I was in college, I was a citizen scientist classifying camera trap images on a project that I now am in charge of. So we've sort of come full circle, you know, it's a good, a good gateway experience into the lives of ecologists and what we do. So I would highly recommend if you're interested, if your students are interested, um, checking out our website, and just, you know, getting a feel for for what we do as ecologists, what our data look like. And it's a wonderful chance just to see some really unique parts of Africa. So please, uh, please engage. Thank you, Dr. Palmer, for this presentation. Um, please check out the virtual attendee hub for recommended resources related to the presenter's topic. So if you are looking at the session and scroll down, you will see the recommended resources. I know that was one of the questions. Uh, join one of the digital rooms of, of the forum at 1.30 to discuss presentations and resources with other practitioners and leaders. And please complete a brief survey if you could to let us know your thoughts on the session, which is located below the video. Thank you all for attending this session of the symposium.